Good afternoon. You're listening. This is WVEW LP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. We're also streaming live online at WVEW.org. You're listening to Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections, on the air every Sunday at noon. We're a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can also find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio and on Instagram. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and guests, not the radio station. Morning, Corey. Good morning, Chris. So I'm Corey Sorensen. I'm a uh, fourth grade teacher in, up in Guilford, and I'm here with Chris. I'm Chris Levensey. I'm a, I teach high school social studies in Springfield, Vermont. And the topic we have this week is our Valentine's special, which we're calling Men and Love. Today, Chris and I are going to talk about, um, we're going to be talking about men, patriarchy, and capitalism. What are the origins of patriarchy? How is it profitable? And how does it divide people? Uh, we'll follow up with how do we have these conversations in our own communities? And how do we teach about this in the classroom? We'll also be introducing a study group that we'll be hosting for men in Brattleboro and surrounding areas to further discuss these topics. So stay tuned. Yes, it'll be um, the Thursdays in March, and it'll be around the same topic, men, patriarchy, and capitalism. So yeah, stay tuned for those dates and times. And we'll begin our show with a song called Strongman by Luscious Jackson. When I'm in 
listening to Oops. You're listening to Indigo Radio. This is Corey and Chris here, and we're talking about um, patriarchy, uh, men, and capitalism. That song was Luscious Jackson, uh, Strongman. And Chris, why don't you kick off the show by talking a little bit about Valentine's Day for our Valentine's Day special. What are the origins of Valentine's Day? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, And I'm certainly not an expert on it, but I, I think all of us can't help but as we walk down the street in our classrooms with our students every day, um, there's no mistaking what time of year it is, and that's the build-up to Valentine's Day. Pink hearts, um, gifts, candy, um, we see it everywhere. we walking down Main Street here in Brattleboro. Um, it's a pink, a pink <laughs> fest. Pink um, and so there's a lot of different kinds of legends about Valentine's Day. One contends that this person, Valentine, was a priest who served under Emperor Claudius, and Claudius had decided that single men made better soldiers than men who had wives and families, and so he outlawed marriage for men. And so Valentine, realizing supposedly that this was an injustice, uh, defied Claudius and continued to perform marriages for young people in love in secret. And when he was discovered, uh, Claudius ordered him put to death, and uh, that story became, uh, he was deified, and we have Valentine's Day. There's a couple other kinds of stories around this too that um, Valentine may have been killed for attempting to help Christians escape the harsh Roman prisons uh, where they were often beaten and tortured. Um, According to one legend in a prison, Valentine actually sent the first Valentine greeting himself after he fell in love with a young girl, possibly the jailer's daughter who had visited him during his confinement. Before his death, he alleged, it was alleged that he wrote um, her a letter and signed from your Valentine. Mm. Um, So we got this idea of resistance to what was happening in the world and others believe also that um, this was a holiday that was celebrated to kind of um, co-opt another celebration, the Lupercalia, which was um, a fertility festival. And in this festival, priests would sacrifice a goat um, and sometimes a dog for purification. Then they would take strips of this goat hide okay, and It'd be coated in blood, and they'd take it into the streets and slap women with these hides of blood. Um, and supposedly, wow. it was women wanted that to happen because it supposedly made them more fertile in the coming year. Hmm. And so later that day, the legend goes, all young women in the city would place their names in a big urn, and the bachelors would have theirs, and they would choose a name and be compared for that year, uh, oh. oftentimes resulting in marriage. And so there's, uh, they thought that this was not the way to do it and they wanted to co-op this and so it became something other than this fertility festival so um, when we think about teaching our students the origins of of any of this the resistance uh, what life was like uh, would be an interesting kind of diversion to to talk about valentine's day in any of those ways yeah and how the times have changed it seems to be a common theme that all a lot of the uh, christian holidays that we celebrate have been kind of co-opted or taken from another holiday around that same time it's interesting and uh so into today's times on valentine's day it's a day where we commodify our love as if it hadn't been commodified already um i can show someone i love them by giving them this thing that i purchased or made perhaps right and i'll just always remember being in like element late elementary and middle school and uh thinking about the one person I had a crush on and having to buy them the perfect thing to show them that they, that I liked them. And it was, it's all about buying. Uh, 
Valentine's Day today is a giant heteronormative orgy of consumerism. Uh, Can we say that one more time? A heteronormative <laughs> orgy of consumerism. Right. That's a- <laughs> but, but what a better way to celebrate that orgy of consumerism than to send your loved ones a meaningless gesture via one of those cards. Uh, just some facts and statistics about Valentine's Day is that uh, the total spending for the holiday is expected to top $18.2 billion, according to the National Retail Federation. That's an average of $136.57 uh, per person. And couples will exchange over 190 million greeting cards during Valentine's Day. Wow. Uh, Americans are expected to spend $1 billion on cards, according to the Greeting Card Association, making Valentine's Day the second most popular card-sending holiday after Christmas. Jewelry is the most popular Valentine's Day gift. 20% of consumers are expected to buy jewelry, spending a total of $4.3 billion. Gosh, I'm thinking about that jewelry and where the <coughs> items to make that jewelry are coming from. And who makes those? Yeah. Uh, loved ones are also expected to spend $2 billion on flowers. The most popular Valentine's Day flowers are, of course, roses. 250 million roses are produced for the holiday, uh, say the Society of American Florists. And you can't, of course, forget chocolate and candy. $1.7 billion is expected to be spent on can- just candy alone. So clearly a, a hugely profitable day. Yes, and it speaks very much to the commodification of our relationships, our love. Um, And so to kind of jump into this a little bit, and we're looking at uh, relationships, and this is about men and love and capitalism and patriarchy. Um, I wanted to go back. um, Silvia Federici is one of our favorite uh, authors here on the show and um, talk a little bit about her book, Caliban and the Witch. And in that, she talks about, um, she traces this, uh, continuous path from the Middle Ages where the feudal economy was in real struggle. Um, they were faced with this crisis of how do you continue to grow, to accumulate, and they made a choice and they made a, a path. Um, the feudal economy couldn't reproduce itself, and so the ruling class, um, as she describes it, quote, launched the global offensive laying the foundations of a capitalist world system we have today. So we moved from this a feudal economy which had run its course and wasn't working and proceeded into um, this march towards a, a new system today, this capitalist system, she says. And in that system uh, was the relentless attempt to accumulate sources of wealth, expand the economic base, and bring new workers under its command. Okay. Those were the pieces of that. And as we know, um, the tools of that, conquest, enslavement, robbery, murder, brute force, those were all the pillars of that process to um, increase to this new system. Okay. And she breaks it down, um, the elements of this process, that the workers, in particular she was focusing on Europe, um, were um, separated from the means of their subsistence, farming. Okay. And the enslavement of Native Americans and Africans forced into the mines and plantations of the New World. And she goes on to say, this process required the transformation of a person into a work machine. And the subjugation of women to be, repro- to be the reproduction of the workforce. So in, in essence, a baby machine. 
And so we were right. separated from being able to make things that we then consumed, farming and other things, to becoming machines. Mm-hmm. And so she goes on to say, one of the things that was most required in this was the destruction of the power of women. And both in Europe and America, and we're not going to talk too much about this, but she talks quite a bit about it, um, um, this idea of the extermination of witches, the witch hunts, which was, in essence, uh, took away a whole section or much of the power of women, um, describing it as uh, satanic, um, all kinds of words that uh, women doing health care for each other, women delivering babies, women having control and power uh, was termed and they were targeted for this idea of witch, witchcraft. And so uh, this was a key component of this moving towards this capitalist system. Um, and so essential to this accumulation um, was also creating these differences amongst people, gender being one of those, and she talks about that with the witch hunts, um, but also um, race and age became also a way to divide us. And so she goes on to say capitalism has created a more brutal and insidious form of enslavement and it has planted into society deep divisions that have served to intensify and conceal exploitation. Does that make sense? <laughs> it's a lot. I just... A lot of uh, background information. Yeah. Uh, kind of important to contextualize where we're at today. Um, because those uh, imposed divisions, especially between men and women, uh, and that capitalist accumulation continues to devastate life uh, in every corner of the planet. Yeah, and I think it's when we initially started talking about the commodification of love and this idea of Valentine's Day, I think that that's very much what she's talking about here, that we're separated from... Um, relationships with each other that are authentic, real, creative, um, and we're, we're forced into something different, that, are, that we are separated and divided from each other, and that, as she said, is based on race, um, class, gender, um, and that's essential to the making of profit. Uh, I'm going I'm to read a quote from the book Caliban and the Witch by Sylvia Federici, where she's actually quoting Barbara Omelade in her essay From Heart of Darkness, where she's talking about white men satisfying their sexual needs by having sex with black women and also at the same time seeing it as a way to increase their enslaved property. Uh, And it reads, To him she was a fragmented commodity whose feelings and choices were rarely considered. Her head and her heart were separated from her hack and her hands and divided from her womb and vagina. Her back and muscle were pressed into field labor. Her hands were demanded to nurse and nurture the white man. Her vagina, used for his sexual pleasure, was the gateway to the womb, which was his place of capital investment, the capital investment being the sex act and the resulting in a child the accumulated surplus. That's that's brutal when we put it in those terms. (laughs) Right, Uh, just the harsh reality of um, uh, women as objects and an investment for for men's personal gain. Mm -hmm. Uh, And with that, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna play a clip of Sylvia Federici talking more about this herself. 
Um, and in this talk, she's talking about giving birth in capitalism and uh, yeah, about childbearing and how it's been expro expropriated from women. If I can... Again, Silvia Federici, giving birth in capitalism. The women have made to more and more go back to the home or to use the, the help of a midwife is an important one. And uh, certainly there is a struggle. In the States, it's been really the product of a whole struggle and has many reasons to it. You know, one reason is that women more and more are terrified, you know, to go to give birth in public institution, in public hospital. Unless you are a well-to-do woman and they can go to a private clinic and, you know, you have all the services you want and uh, you can take all the time you want to deliver your, 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 your child. Uh, in, the, in the public hospitals now, in the United States, you got two hours. After the waters break, two hours. You got the child out or you have a, a cesarean cup. So the number of cesarean you are on an assembly line. You give birth. Giving birth has been industrialized. It has a very fast tempo. The, the state does not have time to wait for your child. Proletarian women do not have the right to follow a natural rhythm. They got their little time, and if they don't produce the child in the little time, then they have to be cut up. Number one. Number two, many women feel that when they go to give birth in a public institution, they are like, uh, it's a very uh, inhuman process. That what could be a powerful experience, one of the most powerful experiences in women's life, become a source of fear, a source of terror. You know, because you're treated like, like, like an object, like a machine who has to produce within time. You are hooked up to all kinds of gadgets, right? You are in a very a passive position, right? And then uh, you have a doctor that engineers everything. And you're made to feel you're not uh, uh, active in that process. You are expropriated of your activity. You're not almost participated. You are reduced into something completely passive. So women are rebelling against that. And this is why they also want to go back to the home and also the cost. Now, even, even uh, you have, in the United States, you have to pay at least $3,000 or $4,000 to, to be able to, to deliver. That's a lot of money. And in many cases, it's not covered. So it's very, very expensive to give birth in an hospital. In addition, when you now go to hospitals, uh, for low-income people, you know, not the private clinic, but to, then they give you, at the end of the, of the delivery, they give you a, an inject, they give you a, a blood test. And it's very scary because it's out of those blood tests that they decide, oh, you used some drugs, right? And you can go directly from the delivery room to a jail. Can you imagine? You give to birth. But out of your delivering, when you, you were supposed to spend your time with your little baby, you can be separated from your child and you can be sent to jail, as it has already happened to a number of women. 
who was told, oh, the blood test showed that you used some drugs. So they come and arrest you. So giving birth is becoming really a nightmare, you know, if you are a poor woman. And there is a continuity. We discover, for example, I discovered, uh, you know, discussing this issue in Italy, for instance, that um, uh, a lot of immigrant women, you know, the, the social workers took away the children from a lot of immigrant women when they lost their jobs, not, not because of their fault, but because the places where they worked uh, and then they had no money, they went to social work and they said, well, can I have some help? And the next day the social worker comes to the house and takes the children away and says, well, you cannot support them. So there is now, the state in Italy has created an institution called the House of the Child, where they bring children that they take away from poor women, mostly immigrant women, and then these immigrant women have to fight to take them back. But it's not always easy. And they can only see the children, you know, once a week or every two weeks under the supervision of a social worker. So to put all this in a context, there is obviously an initiative by the state. It's an initiative that has many sides. For example, uh, population control in Africa. You know, women are bringing poverty into the world. They're making too many children, you know. In this situation, yes, the poverty is because of women who are reproducing too much. Or they're deciding, you know, what are the rules that uh, women have to follow when they're pregnant? What you can do, what you cannot do? Taking away your children when uh, you're asking for some help from the state. So that you're not uh, encouraged. In fact, you are discouraged from asking any help from the state, right? So there's a whole initiative by the state to take over the children of working class women, proletarian women, low income women. And particularly immigrant women are one of the main targets. Wow, that, um, again, put in those terms is, is very intense. I, the, as she described, giving birth as this assembly line industrialized excuse me, assembly line and the, this, what could be the most powerful experience being expropriated from women and, and turned into um, something that's out of their control and that they're very passive in, um, not to mention the high cost and targeting of women of low income and certainly targeting people for drug use and that going, that quote, directly from the delivery room to the jail, um, really powerful and she talks about it in terms of a context or an agenda of uh, controlling controlling the bodies and the children of of women but controlling the bodies of women how how they should uh, be during their pregnancy and after and before population control um, poverty is their own fault so um, I wanted to again these pieces we're sharing I think connect to the, um, this idea about what are the relationships that we have with each other. And I think with Sylvia, um, she's talking about, and we'll talk about this too, patterns, not both individuals, but what are the patterns that we see from historically um, to, to today, and what does that look like? And so I wanted to, Corey, one other example um, about this, um, how it's been um, 
this division among people, rich and poor, black and white, men and women, um, the racialization of this process of giving birth. She talked about giving birth in capitalism. Um, here's another example, and this was taken from uh, a quote uh, from a series on NPR about maternal mortality in the U.S. Um, and the racialized outcomes of it. And I quote, one of the most troublesome health disparities facing black women in the U.S. today, disproportionately high rates of maternal mortality. The main federal agency seeking to understand why so many American women, especially black women, die or nearly die from complications of pregnancy and childbirth had lost one of its own. In the recent years, as high rates of maternal mortality in the U.S. have alarmed researchers, one statistic has been especially concerning. According to the CDC, black mothers in the U.S. die at three to four times the rate of white mothers. Gosh. One of the widest of all racial disparities in women's health. So black mothers die in the U.S. three to four times the rate of white mothers. Put another way, a black woman is 22% more likely to die from heart disease than a white woman, but 71% more likely to perish from cervical cancer, but 243% more likely to die from pregnancy or childbirth and related causes. Uh, stunning statistics. Yeah, it's stunning. Awful, an awful image. Just black women are literally dying from childbirth and uh, it just admits this, this agenda of control of women in their in birth and bodies. It's, it is, it's a startling uh, fact. And I think, again, we can trace this culture and pattern of division and use of violence to today. And so when we think about the need to separate us uh, from our labor and talking about moving from a feudal society to today and we see what it looks like today, um, it's, it's stunning. It's unbelievable. 243% more likely to die from pregnancy or childbirth-related causes. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe to bring it today, too, we could play a, a short clip. Um. Yeah, I mean, there, well, there's also talking about the division between uh, men and women, particularly, and uh, talking about uh, male expectations of women and, and male fragility. Uh, I'm going to play this clip with Rebecca, Rebecca Solnit speaking on Democracy Now!, and she's speaking about the 2014 Santa Barbara massacre, where a 22-year-old man killed six people and injured 14 others after he'd been rejected by multiple women. And he filmed a little manifesto about this, too, that he then posted on his Facebook and other accounts uh, describing this and describing, you know, why don't you, um, why aren't you all over, head over heels for me, women and um, posted that, and you can see it online, but he ended up killing six uh, people and injuring 14 others. Right, and just, I mean, bef- even before I play this clip, remembering that this uh, this is an individual case, but seeing this as, as a problem amongst um, a whole group of men, that this is this population that is performing things like this. Uh, here's a clip. 
hashtag YesAllWomen had been used over 500,000 times, the most on Twitter. In speaking out, women were placing the shooting inside a broader context of misogynist violence. While there's been intense scrutiny of, of the shooter's background and mental illness, there has been far less focus on a culture of violence in which nearly all mass shootings are carried out by men, and people like Elliot Roger feel entitled to victimize the women who reject them. In her new book, uh, Men Explain Things to Me, the writer, historian, activist Rebecca Solnit tackles this issue and many others. She writes, quote, We have an abundance of rape and violence against women in this country and on this earth, though it's almost never treated as a civil rights or human rights issue or a crisis or even a pattern. Violence doesn't have a race, a class, a religion or a nationality, but it does have a gender, she writes. Rebecca Solnit joins us from the studios of San Francisco, a writer, historian and activist. She's written over a dozen books, including her latest, Men Explain Things to Me. She's also contributing editor at Harper's Magazine. Rebecca, your response to what happened in Santa Barbara over the weekend on Friday. One of the things that was fascinating was the battle of the story. There was such a mainstream desire to say, oh, this was aberrant, oh, he was mentally ill, this has nothing to do with us, this raises no big questions. And to see feminists and allies speak out and say, no, this is about misogyny, this is about entitlement, was really extraordinary. The term sexual entitlement, which I'd heard before but not widespread, uh, be, suddenly began to be used everywhere, and it feels like it really changed the conversation because so many people insisted on it, so many people got it. The sense that this guy was owed something by women and was furious at them for not giving it to him, and that he had the right uh, to exact revenge and all kinds of, you know, what our government calls collateral damage on the people around him because his needs weren't being met. Yeah, well, I mean, just thinking about that uh, case in the context of the um, origins of patriarchy that you were talking about, Chris, um, based on Silvia Federici's work, is, I mean, this this might be seen as this individual was sick or had a mental issue or whatever, but, I mean, if you look at it in the context of um, pro profit off of women's women's bodies and control of women and that um, social um, just lessons that we've been taught that that men uh, have that that right to have their needs met by women and I don't know Chris could you speak more about <laughs> yeah yeah I think that um, it is a long history and when we think about this division that um, of labor and um, the neat how we do that how we are able to create profit um, that by dividing each other, it becomes uh, the the dots connect to each other, and this use of violence uh, becomes normalized in our society. Uh, the misogyny becomes normalized in our society. It becomes a culture, and then when the expectation is not met, and this guy clearly um, articulates that in his um, posts before he commits this horrible act, um, that his needs weren't being met um, by and women should be meeting those needs. Um, I think that this is a, a long um, kind of road that we have been on, um, and there's a culture that's been created from this. So right. um, I wanted to just add on to what Rebecca Solnit said and read a couple of her stats that she gives us. Give me just a second here, sir. Okay. Um, she goes to say, 
um, that what we don't talk about when we don't talk about gender. There's so much of it. We could talk about the assault and rape of a 73-year-old in Manhattan Central Park in September of 2012, or the recent rape of a four-year-old and an 83-year-old in Louisiana, or the New York City policeman who was arrested in October of 2012 for what appeared to be serious plans to kidnap, rape, cook, and eat any woman. Any woman because the hate wasn't personal, although maybe it was for the San Diego man who actually killed and cooked his wife in November, and the man from New Orleans who killed, dismembered, and cooked his girlfriend in 2005. Those are all exceptional crimes. But we could also talk about um, the quotas of assaults, because, they're, because though a rape is reported only once every 6.2 minutes in this country, the estimated total is perhaps five times as high, which means that there may be very nearly a rape every minute in the United States. It all adds up to tens of millions of rape victims, a significant proportion of women you know are survivors. We could talk about high school and college athletes and rapes, or campus rapes, to which university authorities have been appallingly uninterested in responding, and we certainly have seen that in the news today with Larry Nasser and uh, the U.S. Olympic Gymnastics Committee and his work at Michigan State as well, hundreds and hundreds of women coming forward, um, the people coming forward and talking about Harvey Weinstein and then all of the others that we've seen. We could talk about the escalating pandemic of rape and sexual assault and harassment in the U.S. military, where Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta estimated, this is the Secretary of Defense estimating that there were 19,000 sexual assaults on fellow soldiers in 2010 alone and that the great majority of assailants got away with it, although a four-star general, Jeffrey Sinclair, was indicted in September for a slew of sex crimes against women. Never mind workplace violence, let's go home. So many men murder their partners and former partners that we have well over a thousand homicides of that kind a year, meaning, and this is pretty startling, that every three years the death toll tops the 9-11 casualties. Though no one declares a war on this particular kind of terror, another way to put it, more than 11,800 corpses from domestic violence homicides between the 9-11 and 2012 exceed the number of deaths of victims of that day and all American soldiers killed in the war on terror. If we talked about crimes like these and why they are so common, we'd have to talk about the kinds of profound change this society or this nation or every nation needs. Yeah, wow. And that's where I think your statement about not making this about the individual, but looking in aggregate, the numbers are astounding and they're a pattern and the pattern has not gone away, that this is a long pattern of um, violence of, against women. Right, and of people, of men, uh, trying to get what they want, like trying to fill this need and expecting it and demanding it. I, I think before, uh, before we continue our conversation, maybe we should take a short break and listen to a song. Uh, I think this song too is, uh, <laughs> it's a, got a catchy tune and it's a, but it's a horrible song in it, but it describes <laughs> this idea song. of um, men just doing what men do. It's called War Excitable Boy by Warren Zevon. And here it is.
little boy, they all said. And he prepped a pot roast all over his chest. Excitable boy, they all said. Well, he's just an excitable boy. He took in the 4 a.m. show at the Clark. Excitable boy, they all said. And he bit the usherette's leg in the dark. Excitable boy, they all said. Well, he's just an excitable boy. Welcome back. This is WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community race radio station. Also streaming live online at www.wvew.org. <laughs> this is Indigo Radio, and we're hoping to deepening understandings and make some connections. We're on the air every Sunday at noon, and we're a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio and on Instagram. And just a uh, Heads up, the views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the hosts and guests, not of the radio station. So my name's Chris. I'm with Corey. We're having a Valentine's Day special talking about men, patriarchy, and capitalism, uh, a huge topic that we need multiple weeks to uh, share, and we can do just that. We're offering a uh, study group, uh, four weeks, four Thursdays in March, to talk about that very subject, men, patriarchy, and capitalism. And stay tuned for the details about that. Yeah, I, I think uh, how important it is for uh, for us men in this community to be having <coughs> these conversations about um, just the things that we've been taught and how we act in our in our social circles in our world. Um, it's a it's a heavy topic and sometimes difficult to talk about, but it's something that we can't ignore. So today we're going to continue this discussion. Um, talking about some of the ways that patriarchy displays itself in our world, including the violence against women, uh, exploitation of women's labor, and how men, are con how men have benefited from this and how men continue to benefit from this today. Um, 
I, I wanted to start off this next section reading uh, from a book, that, a book, a collection of articles about mothering. Um, and this is a quote from Cynthia Dewey Oka about, um, about how women of color have been, have been opp oppressed by men. And here's the quote saying, women of color have been violently punished and stigmatized for mothering. Black women were not legally allowed to marry as slaves. They had to give up their children to their masters, were forced to care for white women's homes and children instead of their own, or lost their young to mass criminal criminalization, incarceration, and poverty-driven violence. Meanwhile, indigenous women have endured the genocide of their communities and forcible sterilization by the state, been expelled from their communities by marriage laws regulating Indian status, or had their children taken from them and placed in residential schools and white foster homes. Today, hundreds of thousands of women in the third world have to leave children behind as they, grow, as they go abroad in search of work. Neither have women of color produced equally valued members of the labor force under the global capitalist regime, where white children are celebrated as increased capital, as increased human capital, black, indigenous, and third world children are lamented as drains on state resources, prospective criminals, and more recently with the racist overpopulation discourse as perpetrators of environmental degradation. I just, I just think this quote really points at, um, like, while all these acts of violence are committed against women, women are still targeted as the problem and are still criminalized as for, um, for just being women, for being mothers and that. What, were you going to say something, Chris? Well, I was going to try to connect this a little bit too and I thinking about um uh, we didn't mention the some of those specific acts and I um know in Puerto Rico at one point um <clears throat> more than at one point on the island after the US took over um that there was a practice and process of sterilizing women um there because of they were not useful that they were less than that they were as they said here, a drain. And at one point, there was a third of all the women on the island of Puerto Rico, uh, indigenous women, were sterilized against their will or unknowingly. One third of all women, and we, we know about the eugenics movement, and it, we've talked about it on this show, the eugenics movement right. here in Vermont. Um, shows like Rabbit Proof Fence and others talk about the assimilation schools in here and other countries. Um, yeah. It's not it's an not isolated incident, and it's not a... Uh, a small minor thing right. either. Where <clears throat> children in Vermont in the 60s, children of poor families, whether they were, were um, mill workers or whether they were just uh, Indian families, children were taken from their homes and put in these schools. And it's not, it's not disconnected from uh, ideology and actions today where I've heard discourse where of people poor people in town taking up resources um, and like living off of welfare or those kinds of things. It's the same, it's the same discourses and the same conversations that target uh, 
women and mothers, poor women and mother, mothers as the problem. Mm. And I think about um, going back to the beginning of the show. So we're talking about the commodification of this idea of relationships and love, and we can show our love and relationships through a card or chocolate or a piece of jewelry. And, um, but the, the tearing apart of um, human relationships and tearing apart of those things like childbirth um, fr and housework and other things from, from our, our experiences and making them a commodity and making them something distant, making them something that we can't control or we have to buy or sell our labor to get. Right. So. Um, well, as, as you might imagine, as we were pulling together information about this topic, we, um, we, there's this conversation should always be continued and there's so much to talk about. I'm just looking at the time that we have yep. and uh, trying to reassess uh, where we take this conversation. So I think maybe for now we should break maybe break for another song so we can uh, discuss maybe where to go next. So let's do, um, let's do a classic song many of us know um, called Boys Don't Cry by The Cure. I'm just trying to find it. Yes, and I think that will lead us nicely into our last part about what do we do in our schools and, and talking about this. So um, I remember this song and from my youth and the song's Boys Don't Cry by The Cure. So, sorry, I'm pulling it up. I can't find the link. Uh, here we go. If you write anything on your computer, you need to get Grammarly. I write pretty much all day.
programming on WVEW is underwritten in part by Everyone's Books. Located in downtown Brattleboro at 25 Elliott Street, Everyone's Books is a family-owned, independent bookstore that has been serving the community for over 30 years. They specialize in books about social change, the environment, politics, and travel, and offer a huge range of children's books. You can reach them by phone at 802-254-8160 or online via their website at everyonesbks.com. WVEW thanks Everyone's Books for their support of this station. And we're back. This is WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station, and you're listening to Indigo Radio, uh, where Chris and I are talking about uh, patriarchy, men, and capitalism. So, Corey, I think um, we want to kind of bring this back, and again, this is a bigger topic that we could talk for days about, but I wanted to talk about, how do we talk about this in our classrooms? (laughs) Yeah. I mean... I think about the elementary school classroom and and just some of the messages that boys and girls are given about themselves and their gender and the roles that they should be fulfilling. So this is something that I think is important to talk about in the classroom. And when I think about how I do in my classroom and when we do have conversations, it's oftentimes around um, analyzing books or media or things that have already been fed to the kids, yeah. uh, messages that girls are given uh, that, uh, to like certain colors or certain things to be complicit, while boys might be given the message to be adventurous, um, to be tough. Um, girls are given the message to be more obedient uh, and are generally uh, seen as as less and or inferior to boys. So calling those out and talking about that in literature in the classroom, I think is one way. It's great. And I also think like connecting those to history, that those aren't just a a identity uh, kind of piece that we connect those to patterns in history. And then for me in the high school, I think about um, looking at those patterns in history. It's absolutely not explicitly in my lesson plans, um, either to talk about resistance to this form of uh, turning our economy and creating divisions in ourselves and certainly not talking about gender in any specific way. Um, And so making that explicit in my lesson plans, making the resistance um, throughout history um, of women resisting the patriarchy that's been imposed on them throughout history as a key part of what I do um, and seeing these patterns that Federici, Solnit, and many others have mentioned. um, And I... Go ahead, Corey. You're no, I, I thought maybe we could play just um, a little bit above uh, someone who I have used in the classroom, and I just used him last week when a student came to me and said uh, ha- they had been writing I Am From poems to, to um, organize history from ourselves and telling our own stories instead of telling the stories of the rulers and the ruling class. I wanted to root that in I Am From poems, and he came and said to me, this is one of the hardest things I've ever done. And I said, really, why? And he said, I, I just, it's so emotional. And I said, really, what, what's the problem with emotion? And he said, that's not how I was raised. That's not what my dad did. And we started talking, and he said he hadn't cried in, you know, 10 years, and he had never seen his father cry. Um, and 
I was trying to both connect that to patterns, but also this personal piece that he was sharing with me. And so I played a little video uh, part of it by Tony Porter as um, something, and we're going to play just a bit of it to share with you too. Busy and whip it, bit, bam, boom, Kenwin J. Right. And when they were about courageous, grew up in uh, New York City, between Harlem and the Bronx. Growing up as a boy, we was taught that men had to be tough, had to be strong, had to be courageous, dominating, no pain, no emotions, with the exception of anger and definitely no fear. That men are in charge, which means women are not. That men lead, and you should just follow and just do what we say. That men are superior, women are inferior. That men are strong, women are weak. That women are of less value property of men and objects, particularly sexual objects. I've later come to know that to be the collective socialization of men, better known as the man box. See, this man box has in it all the ingredients of how we define what it means to be a man. Now, I also want to say, without a doubt, there are some wonderful, wonderful, absolutely wonderful things about being a man. Well, at the same time, there's some stuff that's just straight up twisted. And we really need to begin to challenge, look at it, and, and really get in the process of deconstructing, redefining what we come to know as manhood. This is my two at home, Kendall and Jade. They're 11 and 12. Kendall's 15 months older than Jade. So that was just a little clip it, uh, snippet of um, Tony Porter talking about um, man and manhood and the man box and laying out um, what he was taught about women have less value, women are the property of men, women should certainly obey and uh, do what men say. And I got to say that's what I was told explicitly and implicitly in my education and my family that I had a right. and. Um, and so when we think about what do we teach in school, what are all these tools that we use and what do we challenge, um, I think that that's certainly a piece of this too. Yeah, and I think one of the parts of challenging isn't just in the classroom with students, but also with the adults around us. Like I hear all the time the, the discourse or conversation that, oh, boys are just going to be boys and that idea that it's just, it's just natural for boys to be that way and that's how boys are. Um, which we should be opposing in our Absolutely. schools and, and, and when we hear that conversation because it's not human nature. that that's, These are learned behaviors, and that's a huge part of the problem. Um, I, I think we're almost out of time today, so I want to start wrapping up our show and just um, say that this, the content and discussion on this topic can, can happen over multiple shows, and uh, Chris and I would like to host a four-part study group uh, on men, patriarchy, and capitalism, where we can talk more about um, uh, the exploitation of women's labor, violence against women, men's role uh, today in opposing this and acting. Uh, the study group will be called Men, Patriarchy, and Capitalism. It'll be, the th it'll be Thursdays in March, beginning March 8th, 15th, 22nd, and 29th. Uh, tentatively at Marlboro grad, uh, College Graduate Center, but, and it'll be from 6.30 to 8. Soup and bread will be provided. 
uh, check for the details on that on our Facebook page at Indigo Radio or at Brattleboro Solidarity. And also around town, we're going to have up flyers. So look for that Men, Patriarchy, and Capitalism uh, study group. Uh, anybody is welcome to come. Um, and we're looking, and again, we're not the experts on this, and we've just barely touched on this today, but we would like to keep delving into this a lot more. So Absolutely. Um, well, let's, uh, let's end our uh, show with a song. Um, uh, so how, do, should we do the No Doubt song? Uh, no. No? <laughs> Go with All right. Well, this is Indigo Radio. We're looking to make connections um, with the world around us. We are hoping to deepen understanding. We're on the air every Sunday at noon. And as a group of educators, we hope to learn through engaging with you, ourselves, in the community, and throughout the world. You can find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio and on Instagram. All right, then here's a song by The Head Coatees. It's called You're Right, I'm Wrong, and maybe you'll be able to draw the connections. Uh, thanks for listening today, and uh, uh, let's tune in next week. Thank players, your coach told you you were playing like a girl. Now, I expected him to say something like, I'll be sad, I'll be... incomes, debts, all of those kinds of dimensions of our lives that affect us, our children, our futures. I'm your host, Richard Wolff. I've been a professor of economics all my adult life, and as always, I hope that that has been a good training to bring you this analysis of the last week or so's major economic events. I want to begin today with talking about Two related things. The release of regular government data about the economy. It is, after all, the United States government that is the major producer and distributor of data about jobs, incomes, interest rates, you name it. And then the media, the major media in this country, who record and who announce and who distribute what it is the government says. 
So in the last week or so, there's been a release, as is typical this time of the year and this time of the month, of data. And the one that got the most attention was an announcement that wages, and here the numbers are important, that wages had gone up, hourly wages, between January 2017 and January 2018, by 2.9%, so just under 3%. This got the media into a tizzy, which the government clearly wanted and fed. Why? Because wages have been stagnant in the United States for most of the last 35 years. That's right. If you adjust the money we get as wages to the prices we have to pay for what we spend our wages on, we're not getting much more today than we did in the late 1970s. Yes, we have more money in the pay envelope, but when you pay the higher prices, you're about able to buy the same amount of stuff today that you could then. For most Americans, if you're actually buying more stuff, it's not because your wages went up more than the prices. They didn't. It's because you're borrowing more money, and that carries its own dangers. But let's get back to this number, almost 3% increase in wages over the year. See, a number of commentators said, the economy is improving. Well, here we go with a reality check. First question, how did prices go up over the last year while wages were going up 2.9%? The answer is between 2 and 2.1% is the rise in prices. In other words, when you adjust the 2.9% increase in money wages for the 2.1% increase in the prices we pay, you're left with a 0.8% increase in the actual wage per hour we get. And then we have more problems. In January of this year, the average length of the work week shrank so that you have less hours of work. So, of course, you're not getting paid as much. And compared to a year ago, the percentage of our people that are in the labor force, either working or looking for work, is lower than it was a year ago. Well, when you put these things together with the normal uncertainty of these numbers, here's the inescapable conclusion. Wages are stagnant in the United States. They are as stagnant over the last year as they have been for most of the 30 years. The notion that it's different from that is a mistake, I'm being polite, or a deliberately misleading effort 